Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Evan Schnidman, founder of Prattle and now an investor in data companies. In the first part of this conversation, Evan and I discuss how his company Prattle rapidly predicted market reaction to new central bank announcements, before then going on to discuss his views on alternative data and how he chooses his investment targets. You're very welcome. Um, so, Evan, the first thing I'd like to talk about, I'm drawn to, I don't usually uh, get uh, on my alternative data podcast, I don't usually get doctors of philosophy, PhDs in political economy from Harvard. Um, so, first of all, how does one go from being a doctor of philosophy in political economy to getting into alternative data? Uh, one takes a, a, a strange and winding career path. That's how one does that. Um, but uh, no, but in all seriousness, um, it was actually a fairly no- normal path for uh, a progression for my research. Um, I actually started out my career as a game theorist um, and I was modeling small group decision dynamics. And in particular, I was examining um, effectively how do, how do we get small groups of decision makers to mitigate their own cognitive biases when making investment decisions. And during the financial crisis, that led into a research agenda studying how to mitigate cognitive bias when making policy decisions. And of course, the most interesting small group of policymakers in the world, circa 2009-10, was the Federal Reserve. So I set out to model how the Fed makes decisions and how those decisions affect financial markets. Uh, In turn... How very interesting. Just... Just quickly on that, how does so game theory is, you know, it's a beautiful mind. It is uh, the prisoner's dilemma in terms of, um, you know, will the will the you've, you've got two prisoners and will one tell on the other, etc. How does game theory play into cognitive bias in making decisions about monetary and policy, monetary policy? Yeah, so it's actually quite it's quite a profound impact. Right. So you think about how institutions are structured um, and, and what are the guardrails against one's own biases and what types of informational inputs are they given, right? So in the prisoner's dilemma, one of the foundational aspects of that is that each prisoner is is operating with imperfect information, right? So they don't know what the other prisoner is contemplating or deciding. And Mm -hmm. so they can actually end up with a suboptimal outcome. Um, Whereas in monetary policy, in theory, everybody's operating with the same information. Um, but that doesn't mean that their own priors, their biases on that information are uniform. And in fact, they're not. So it's a lot about po- politics. I mean, so, for example, whether you think um, a high interest rate is a good thing or a bad thing, for example. That's right. That's exactly right. And so if you think about um, the appointment process, the confirmation process, and then, of course, the internal decision dynamics within uh, both the Federal Reserve Board as well as the FOMC, uh, which is the main policymaking arm, um, those all play a role. And interestingly enough, the, the Federal Reserve System um, is a great example of, uh, of the, the age-old question of, um, is the Fed chair a, a dictator or a consensus builder? 
And um, I, I think that the most most scholars, most economists would contend that the Fed chair is actually a consensus builder, not a dictator. But they almost never lo- lose the, uh, the the majority vote. They never they almost never get overruled, um, which can create the illusion that the Fed chair is actually a dictator, not a consensus builder. I think it's the. I think it's the Sun newspaper, which has correctly predicted every UK election since 1970 something. And people often think that that's because the Sun tells their readers what to what to vote. Um, But potentially it's the the fact that they listen to their readers so well um, that they always know who their who their readers are going to, you know. So it's listening to the room, perhaps rather than dictating the room. It might be the same thing um, with 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 the chair. Well, and, and subtly influencing those folks by knowing what will resonate with any one individual, right? Um, and so knowing that that if somebody has a labor economics background, that you should be fo- focusing on the job market aspects of the Fed mm-hmm. mandate. Um, whereas if somebody is is a noted inflation hawk, um, you probably need to be focusing on on uh, how rates are impacting the, the inflationary pressures. Right. It's the, it's the value of using the Fed's dual mandate to appeal to different to, to essentially different decision makers to different thought processes. So how did your work? What was the what was what was the idea of, of um, removing the, the cognitive biases? What was there? Was there a kind of a, a schematic like a, a technique which which emerged from it? Yeah, it's it's sort of an interesting um, sort of st- multi-stage process. Um, where, of course, the institution is set up a certain way um, to try to mitigate bias um, or, or at least try to try to clarify what that bias is, right? The, the bias is towards fulfilling the dual mandate, um, low and stable inflation, maximum employment, and, and everything else is supposed to fall by the wayside. Um, whether or not that actually is true, given the, the political interests, given the, the, the players involved, um, that, that's a whole other separate question. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I think that probably the most important outcome of the research I did on this circa the financial crisis was it turns out most people actually don't care that much about how the decisions are made or, or even what the policy is. What the market really reacts to is the way those things are communicated. And in fact, Fed communication or central bank communication more broadly is actually the thing that, that truly moves the market, not even the policy or, or the decision dynamics. I mean, that seems strikes me as a very two, 2008 view because we went through the whole forward guidance thing after that, didn't we? We went through the whole, it feels like forward guidance was a um, an attempt by the central banks to um, to announce or guide the market in, into what was going to happen later on. But then, um, but then like everyone else, their best laid plans, uh, like, you know, events happened. And so they had to change their plans. And so forward guidance was kind of shown up. But it, it feels like we kind of went through that, that, that communication first. And then um, and so and the, 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 the central banks have had to become a little bit more reactive. Do, does that does that sound right? I, I, you know, I'm not sure reactive is the word I would use. I would say that central banks have become much more sensitive about how they communicate and um, and, and in particular, because forward guidance has become the primary means of communications, right? Mm. We're not seeing frequent rate changes because rates have been effectively pegged at zero or, or near zero now for over a decade. Um, and so it's a lot of a lot of it is communicating with the market. And obviously, a lot of that has to do with the asset purchases as well um, and, and novel forms 
of of policy that frankly just didn't exist prior to 2009. Mm. I mean, broadly on this, on whether or not it, it's 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 fit for purpose, whether or not the construction is 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 good. I mean, it strikes me that every time the Fed announces anything, then the, the at least Twitter or, or the market in general is is often up in uproar, saying they haven't got a clue what they're doing, but. They've done not a bad job since 2008. Obviously, 2008 is a bit of an aberration. But, um, but you know, over the last 12, 13 years, it's been it's been a fairly successful model. And and while disasters have been have been you know um, disasters have been prophesied every time, it hasn't actually um, tended to happen. It's it's all it's all been fairly stable so far. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think um, you know that's a testament to the institution more so than anything else, right? We've had three Fed chairs over that time period, right? Bernanke, Yellen, and Powell. Um, and, and we've had, um, you know, fair, pretty significant economic shocks, COVID obviously being the most severe. Um, and, and yet, um, you know, policies managed to handle that pretty, pretty well and markets have taken it largely in stride. Uh, I think the next five years will, will tell us a lot about how successful that policy's been. And um, and also, I mean, now you've got finally have uh, a fiscal impulse, right? So you actually have fiscal stimulus um, in, in a way that really hadn't existed prior to 2020. Um, and, and, uh, and so now it'll be very interesting to see um, how central bankers deal with that after having spent the better part of a decade asking for more fiscal stimulus. Now they've got it. And, and the question is, is that going to spur off inflation? And will they have to raise interest rates and combat that or or will will inflation remain relatively constrained? Uh, and the answer is, uh, in my humble opinion, um, I, I think we have all of the tools at our disposal uh, to combat inflation pretty quickly and effectively. Um, when you're at the nice part about being at the zero lower bound is it's very very easy to raise interest rates, um, and so I, constraining inflation is not a concern I have personally. Um, I think the question is. Um, how how much damage does it do to the market if and when they end up having to do that? I think the market's gotten pretty used to uh, having you know essentially free money, um, you know zero zero percent interest rates and, and lots of stimulus. Um, the question is, will the will this rally continue um, when when that dries up? So we might be about to see who's swimming naked. Um, but no, Evan, I think possibly it might be time for us to start talking about alternative data as, as fun as this has been. Um, we're going to lose people. So let's, 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 how do you get from your political economy PhD from Harvard, uh, graduated 2013, to founding Prattle, um, which is an alternative data company in June 2014? Yeah. So um, in many ways, Prattle was the logical extension of the work I was doing. Um, yeah, I was looking at small group decision dynamics at the Federal Reserve and, and realized, as I said, the thing that really moves the market is not their decision dynamics or, or even the policy they're making itself. By and large, the thing that moves the market is actually how they communicate. And so um, I started looking around at central bank communication and realized that the state of the art, especially circa, you know, the financial crisis or the period shortly thereafter, but but even largely today, um, is highly subjective. It's um, it's predicated on people's own biases um, as an analyst, as a researcher, as a strategist, and um, and so I, I set out to create a comprehensive, unbiased way to measure 
central bank communication and delved into natural language processing and realized that the state of the art at the time was really not sufficient to analyze something as complex or nuanced or veiled as so-called FedSpeak. Um, and so I developed a methodology working with, with my business partner, Bill McMillan. Um, we, we, we really built a system to analyze linguistic patterns, tying them directly to price action. So we were identifying how every word, phrase, sentence, and paragraph in a central bank communication um, resulted in market response. And so by identifying those linguistic patterns and tying them to price action, we were effectively creating a quote-unquote sentiment metric, um, but it was completely unbiased and predicated on how the market is actually interpreting the language. Um, and and the, res the result was obviously an early form of alternative data. For sure. So it wasn't even necessarily about what the what the central bankers meant when they were uttering their utterances. It was more about what every time the central banker had said something like that, this is how the market reacted. And so this is how the market will react as a result of this message, whether whether or not the um, the central banker might be putting his foot in it. And actually, it might be going the opposite way to what he in intended. But you can use the history of central bank statements to to track the likely how the market is likely to react. That, that's precisely right. And in fact, I, I often would say to my clients, um, you know, it's not my job to decide whether this is hawkish or dovish. All I can tell you is that the market will react as though this is hawkish or dovish. Was it ever, did you, were you ever, were you ever thrown off by, um, you know, as you said, quantitative easing as a phrase was kind of invented in 2008. Were there, were there any phrases which were massive, but um, didn't have a history? You know, it's interesting. We built our system to really combat that problem, right? So um, we, we built the system to handle new language such that by the second time it's being used. So the very first time um, we didn't have contextual information. By the second time we have context in each subsequent usage, we get more and more refined in identifying what the likely market reaction is to that specific language. So um, we didn't have problems with, with specific language. Um, where we ran into issues was actually um, context, right? So um, one of the policy calls that I, I vividly recall getting wrong um, it was um, there was an attempted coup in Turkey, and um, that, ca that caused um, an ousting of central bank personnel, um, rapid stimulus, things that we didn't see coming simply by analyzing the Turkish central bank's language. Turkey's a different world. I mean, the, um, Erdogan thinks putting up uh, interest rates and increases inflation. You know, being a central banker is is a is a strange thing in Turkey. Absolutely, and it's and it is a paradigm that is not seen in pretty much any other country in the world. Mm. And we just didn't we we didn't foresee that shift in language mentality and personnel happening mm. so rapidly, um, especially on the heels of a political event like an attempted coup. And so um, we we were we didn't adjust the models fast enough on that one. I'm, I'm not surprised. I don't think anyone did, anyone did like the Aku kind of, you know, it, it took everyone by surprise somewhat. Um, did you? So how big was your universe? Like, uh, I'm interested. I, I assumed um, that you were just covering the United States, but how 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 many countries were you covering? No, we covered 20 central banks around the world. Um, so effectively, the G20, um, and really it was our focus was on. Um, market moving language that, that really impacted 
essentially the the FX and global rates environment. And so largely it's six central banks dictate the vast majority of those flows. Um, but you, once you get into the top 15 to 20, it's it's pretty much the entire global market or pretty close to it. And did you, um, could you read across in terms of uh, like, uh, could you take lessons from the Bank of England and read it across to the, to the um, Bank of Japan? Uh, or would you have to, or would would you could you only um, compare the J- Japanese central banker to previous Japanese central bankers? So what we found was that um, there's actually a lot more reliability identifying how one central banker looks relative to themselves over time and to their predecessor than they do across central banks. So a perfect example of this is Mark Carney, right? Um, he was the you know, governor of the uh, of Bank of Canada, and then went to the Bank of England. And in fact, um, when, when you change central banks, um, you tend to look more like your predecessor at the new bank than you do like yourself at the previous institution, because it is all about those institutional constraints. Um, what is what is the policy context? What is the actual domestic economy doing? Um, to the point where I can tell you that as chair Janet Yellen looked more like Ben Bernanke in her language patterns than she did like herself as vice chair. And in fact, it's even more, it's even more extreme when she went from being president of the, uh, the Fed Bank of San Francisco to being the vice chair. Um, she had an even more significant shift in her language. So role matters more than individual. Um, you, and, and really, that means you can't cross cut central banks. Um, you really have to look at them to, that that policymaker relative to themselves or their predecessor in the same position. Would you say the same thing about the European Central Bank in that it strikes me that Draghi was quite a different sounding and different. He seemed to be working under a whole different set of institutions than Trichet. And then um, Lagarde has been different all, again. Is it, is it, did you notice, is it unusual the European uh, versus the others? Yes, the ECB is interesting because you start to run into some cultural differences in between policymakers as well. So it's not actually just, um, you know, it's not actually just shifting from one policymaker to the next. You run into regime changes, right, in terms of in terms of what is the policy regime and what is what's the context in the economy. But you also run into cultural differences in who the policymaker is. Um, Lagarde is particularly interesting because she is more, more, more of a politically savvy leader than an economist mm. and, and relies on, on that type of consensus building a lot more overtly than her predecessors. Um, now, I would argue that, that Draghi actually did the same thing, but um, more, more behind the scenes. Um, and, and you're seeing that now sort of play out in some of his political ambitions as well. He wasn't always building consensus. Well, he didn't. I yeah. <laughs> I feel like sometimes he just he built enough and then and then and then forced it through. But um, but no point taken. Interesting. But so alternative data wise, so you created it for not to be sold as data. How, did you you said it kind of turned into alternative data? What was the original conception? Yes, the original conception was um, was simply could we explain market movements based on simple analysis of, of identifying is a central bank communication hawkish or dovish and, and how, how much so. And as we, as we developed out that, that data, we realized very quickly it actually had very high correlation uh, across asset classes. And so um, we kind of looked at each other and said, well, this, this has a lot broader application than just an academic project. Um, 
we should be taking this to market and started selling effectively this, this quant macro signal to the narrow slice of the world that are our quant macro hedge funds um, and quickly realized we needed to make it more digestible or understandable for the discretionary macro world and started wrapping research around it as well. Was anyone else doing this at the time or did you feel uh, lonely, <laughs> alone? We were definitely alone. Um, yeah, no one else was analyzing Fed speak or central bank speak more broadly um, in the way we were. I, I met, um, methodologically, what we had done um, was we had built a unique lexicon for each individual central bank and then residualized on a per speaker basis. Um, so in order to be able to build out that lexicon, you needed to have a fair amount of archival text. You also need to solve for some of the mathematical problems that we ran up against, which really entailed uh, being able to scale language off of a smaller amount of text, so a, a shorter corpus um, than other methodologies would require. And so um, in order to, to solve for the math there, we, we've done something fairly novel um, and, and really it allowed us to have a more comprehensive, nuanced view of that market moving language in, in near real time. And who are you selling to and what did it look like, your, um, your, your, your output? Yeah, so primarily to hedge funds. Um, it was a singular quantitative score representing how hawkish or dovish a particular communication was um, within seconds of that communication being made publicly available. Mm -hmm. um, and so the end result, of course, is that, uh, um, that, we, that, that we would be able to then track that back to asset price moves, policy calls, um, things like that. And so um, we put out weekly research pieces. We also um, sold the data directly via API. And then ultimately we built a, a front end user interface for our more fundamental or discretionary clientele as well. And who, who tended to use you the most? Who, who appreciated you the most? Was it more quants or fundamentals or how, how are you being used, do you think? You know, it depends. Um, the the percentage of the market that uh, that I would call truly quant macro is is quite small. Um, so it's just a, it's a small target demographic. Whereas um, the discretionary macro world, especially in terms of, of AUM, is massive. Um, so our, our larger clientele ended up falling into the discretionary macro universe. Um, but really, it was it, our, our sort of primary users were multi strat hedge funds. Um, that had both quant and, and fundamental applications. And what we ended up finding was that um, you know, within a couple of years of launching the product, we had a lot of clients coming to us and saying, you know, they were, they were drowning in corporate communications. Could we apply the same methodology we were using to analyze complex market moving language from central banks? Could we apply that methodology over to the corporate use case and analyze earnings calls and regulatory filings, speeches by corporate officers, press releases, all of these other things that were, were flowing across their desk that they were struggling to keep up with. And so by 2017, what we ultimately ended up doing was um, we raised venture capital funds to really, to really expand our business and analyze those corporate communications, building out a unique lexicon for every publicly traded company in the United States. So um, really building out that lexicon specific to how Apple communicates differently from Google, from Amazon. Uh, from Microsoft, et cetera. Did you feel that they were suffering? Because um, do, they, do they have the same constraints in terms of new personnel using the same language and, and that you could read backwards on? It's not obviously a country 
has like massive cultural and, and, you know, hundreds of years worth of history kind of constraints in a way almost because it's the institutions, whereas a, a, a corporation can be a little bit more nimble if they get a, get a, a kind of vigorous CEO perhaps. Yeah, it's an interesting question because you do see shifts in language that can be substantial um, from as you change over in leadership. Um, interestingly, though, uh, if you look at an earnings call, where you see bigger changes is when there's changeover in the investor relations personnel. Um, IR personnel often script the prepared remarks. They often uh, have ready-made answers um, for, for executive leadership to provide in the Q&A in an earnings call. And so what we found was that um, you really actually have a fair amount of consistency, even when you have a new management team coming in. It's when you have a situation where you have new management and a new investor relations team. Um, which frankly is fairly rare, except for in the cases of, of mergers and acquisitions. Um, M&A can cause the, uh, the models to, to, to behave a little strangely and, uh, and you may need, need some retraining there. Mm, interesting. So you really broke into the kind of corporate side of things. And so then did that diversify you in terms of client base as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that made our, our primary client base, uh, multi-strat hedge funds, some very large quant funds, um, heavily used our analysis of, of corporate communications because um, really we were we had, because we had built a unique lexicon for every publicly traded company um, specific to that how that company's prior communications influenced their own stock price. Um, we had extremely granular data not only on that headline score for each communication but also all of the component scores, right? Understanding how that individual changes over time, how that individual changes relative to, to the other executive leadership. Um, and then also the ability to analyze analysts, right? What, uh, how positive or negative are the questions an analyst is asking on an earnings call? Um, and so we, because we had all of the granular data on that, um, that opened up the, the world of quant funds, significantly for us, but also, um, you know, multi-strats and, and the large asset manager community um, who's, who's really just looking for um, an ability to analyze that type of language more effectively, more efficiently, more consistently across use cases. Are you relying on the quality of um, transcription, automatic transcription software as well, and I, which has massively improved in the last kind of five, six, seven years. But surely in the, in the kind of early days, if it's all about speed and, for example, you're talking about analysts making a, making a, saying something on a call, then that's not something which is going to be released. So that's something you need to, need to have transcribed. Um, and so it strikes me that there's a lot of potential for a dodgy transcription leading to perhaps major, major effects in the numbers or did that never happen? No, that's that's definitely a, a potential pitfall. Thankfully, we had um, pretty reliable transcription tools, um, and we were we were able to purchase finalized transcripts as well, um, just to verify the, the accuracy of what of what we were analyzing. Um, but you're right. I mean, transcription has come a long way in the, in the last few years. Um, I'm an advisor to a company called Era um, that does event monitoring, and and one of the big things that they're able to do is. Um, is have not only the audio recordings, but also the direct voice to text transcription in real time. And in fact, be able to rewind the audio um, or the transcription in real time. So you can go back and check on what was said, directly quoting things during the course of the call. Um, those are tools that would have been extremely valuable to us at Prattle 
uh, four, five, six years ago, trying to build out um, that that analysis, um, but frankly, just weren't available at the time. And that's that's cutting edge technology today. Fantastic. So takes us up to May 2019, and Prattle gets acquired. Um, how did that come about? What what did that look like? Yeah, we uh, you know we were in a fortunate situation where um, we were looking at a term sheet for our next round of capital, and kind of looked around at the market, and, and ended up getting an acquisition offer um, from from a large data company, and said, you know, I think we we should explore that. And uh, as we were exploring that, um, we got. Uh, another acquisition offer in, and we ended up taking the offer from LiquidNet. Um, and so we were acquired. In fact, actually, it was two two years ago yesterday. Happy anniversary. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, and so we, uh, yeah, so um, we, you know, Prattle was, was acquired in May of, uh, of 2019, um, really with, with a focus on, um, on us coming into to LiquidNet and helping them build out the new investment analytics business. Um, was on the heels of the the acquisitions of OTOS and Research Exchange, um, so taking pre-trade analytics and research and really bringing in Prattle to kind of bridge the gap between um, the, those two disparate fields and um, and so yeah so our, our team joined LiquidNet uh, in in 2019 um, really with the express purpose of of taking what we had built analyzing central banks and corporates and and incorporating that into, into this broader framework for, for investment analytics across the board. Fantastic. So it was, it was literally just fitting the peg into the hole type thing. It was, um, yeah, as before almost, but as part of a wider, wider framework. Precisely. Okay, cool. Okay. And so you worked, so you were there, um, until April, 2020. And so then, so then, um, so take me from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I spent about a year uh, at LiquidNet running the, uh, the, the data and innovation components um, uh, of the company and, and really focusing on building out that investment analytics business. Um, and, and really, my, my goal was uh, to get our team settled, to keep our, our clients happy and, um, and really figure out where, um, where we could add the most value to that platform. And so I spent about a year there doing that. And uh, um, and then left LiquidNet last spring, um, really to focus my energy on uh, on really advising startups, um, spending a lot of time uh, doing some angel investing, and now I'm in the process of actually standing up a small venture fund as well. And uh, so, advising startups, you've been there, you've done it, you've created a, you've created a, um, you know, you created the company which was acquired, and you've 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 kind of been through the whole process. So, did you have a, did you did you miss those those heady days of of kind of rapid growth, and you wanted a, a taste of that, if if only vicariously? Is that is that the thinking? Do you think? I uh, sort of um, the the longer the, the sort of longer answer is, um, you know, we had had an extraordinary advisory board at Prattle, and and I relied heavily on on seasoned hands who'd been there and done that in various ways. And I think a lot of companies can benefit from having great advisors. And frankly, too many companies have horror stories about um, an advisor who joined them and you know took an equity package and was helpful for two days or two weeks and then disappeared and, and still sitting there with that equity vesting and nobody wants to let them go because they're high profile. And um, you know, they have all these problems with, with their advisors. And um, what I've found is that it doesn't take that much to be a highly engaged advisor and really be helpful on everything from internal company operations and capital raising um, to some of the more directly product and sales related 
items, right? Developing new technology, working on product, understanding product market fit, um, and really working to, to iron out that sales process as well. And so um, stepping in and, and working with companies, um, not only in fintech, I've, I've worked with companies in insure tech and legal tech and pure data science as well, um, to help get them you know, operationally um, running more smoothly, but, but more importantly, really helping them understand what their clients need and make sure that, that the technology they're building, the tools they're building meets the specifications of their clientele. Obviously, if you're a founder and a CEO of a, of a company like Prattle, then you have to fight fight all the fires, essentially, and, and, and be everywhere. Was there a particular kind of challenge that you overcame at Prattle that you feel has put you in a really good position to advise others going through the same thing? Was there anything which, you know, which, which you just felt, you know, when you, when you, when you puzzle through a problem, then you're, then there's no one like you at solving it because you've, you've, you've been there and done that. Is there anything specific or is it, is it all of them? Uh, I could, I probably could point to a dozen examples. Um, you know, I think, you know, startups are a little bit like dog years, right? Um, every year counts for seven or something like that. Um, so it definitely feels like I've packed, I packed a whole career into into the five plus years I was I was running Prattle independently plus the year um, within LiquidNet and, and and really it was um, for me um, I've you know I've been through the capital raising process I've been through the the acquisition process um, and so those things are obviously helpful to a lot of startups um, but but really I think that the the thing that that has been sort of most helpful to me is really understanding the market dynamics and all the players involved and because we were part of that kind of first wave of alternative data companies, um, we've you know, I, I've had the benefit of of having a front row seat to the to how the asset management oriented fintech world has evolved for the better part of a decade. Um, so I kind of have seen what works and what doesn't, what players are are likely to to actually buy technology versus just kick tires, um, and how quickly different organizations move, and and also how beneficial certain types of partnerships really are. Um, and therefore, how much energy should be spent on them? Absolutely. So you're so you're um, just you were just telling me that you've just you've just launched are, are launching a venture capital fund called Scientifico. What's the what's the aim of that? What's the focus of that? Or and and does it have you been um, investing already? What and what kind of how does it all play in? What what have you been investing in uh, up to now as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been uh, in the process of advising startups. Sometimes I, you know, I look at deals that are so good that come across my desk. I, I also invest as an angel investor, and um, not not exclusively in, in fintech. In fact, across the board. But um, as I've gotten more involved in the angel investing community and more involved in the advisory work, um, I realize that you know the the traditional venture capital model is is quite inefficient. Um, it misses out on a lot of great early stage opportunities. Um, but it also doesn't necessarily um, incentivize people to do the hard work that is necessary to really understand product market fit, to really understand what it is that the clientele is demanding. Um, and so the premise behind Scientifico is that we're actually a venture studio. So we build companies internally inside the fund predicated on how, uh, on, on really meeting the real market needs. So we've got a whole slate of opportunities that we validate through a scientific process um, that we've is largely predicated on um, my own game theoretic research on how to mitigate cognitive bias and in making investment decisions. And then coupled with my, my business partner, 
uh, on Scientifico, uh, uh, Evan Reese. Um, Evan Reese had been doing research on the empirical commonalities of startup success. And so what we've been very, uh, very successful at doing so far is actually combining the data he brings to bear on what does it take to get a company to being acquired for over $100 million versus um, what is the process we're running to really understand the contours of an opportunity and, and really put, put some energy and investment capital into building a business. And so we have a validation process that really the goal is to invalidate every idea we see. And only if we fail to invalidate that idea, right, then we have extremely high high conviction in that idea and we will actually invest in it. And so we're building companies effectively inside of the fund. Yeah. I'd like to take both halves of that if I can. Um, and, and maybe I can't, but the first half being what does it take for a venture capital to be a, uh, sorry, a venture driven uh, investment to, to be a success? Um, does he, does his research have three to five bullet points or is it much more complicated than that? So uh, it does. Uh, it, it is quite a bit more complicated than that. But what it generally boils down to is really deeply understanding your market. Too often, companies are started like like Prattle was. I, I will fully admit I made this mistake in early days, um, where I had a great idea, had developed some technology, and and thought, oh, this is a product I can sell. I hadn't gone out and talked to hedge funds, let alone the dozens of hedge funds I should have talked to to say, will you buy this? How much will you pay? How do I need to change the product to make it more applicable to your use case? I didn't have those conversations until I had already launched Prattle and already taken investor capital. And so um, what we're trying to do with Scientifico is push that process forward. Just to interrupt quickly, sorry, but would they have been willing to have a conversation with you if you hadn't got a product, do you think? I, that's an interesting question. Um, and you know, if you'd asked me that, um, back back when I was starting Prattle, I probably would have said no. Um, but as I've as I've learned more about the venture building process and and worked with entrepreneurs, I actually think that yes, when there's a real pain point in the market, um, people want it solved and they're perfectly happy to talk to other users, you know, to uh, other parties, other um, innovators, to come out and say yes, this is what I would need to solve this problem. Um, they may not tell you exactly how much they're going to spend on it, but they will talk to you about um, you know what the what the contours of their problem are and what some potential solutions might look like, uh, because they, they just want to make their life easier. They want to become better investors, mm -hmm. and if you can build the tools to allow them to do that, they're perfectly happy to pay you for that. It helps if you know them beforehand, though, with it being quite a quite a relationship based market. Um, yeah, cold calling a hedge fund to say I've got a I want to talk to you about a product I might create. It might be a hard cold call to to make. I would think. I, it certainly could be. Um, I, I still contend that uh, a shocking number of people are are actually open to those conversations. And and more to the point, um, it's the only way to really understand what type of a product needs to be built, right? And, and, you know, you can have a theory about the, the type of product, but when you're an academic who's not been in the market, it's very hard to get that right. I, I think we got a lot of things right at Prattle, but um, it took us a while of really, to really understand our market and build, and build the nuances into the product to really satisfy their needs. Fair enough. No, it completely makes sense. Um, so the second half I wanted to ask you about was your side, which is are there any obvious, what, are there big um 
uh, flashing biases which which you need to think about first? Are there any common biases in this situation? Which, or is it completely personal, or are there are there big ones across the market like um, that everyone falls into? I, the most common one is that people fall in love with their own ideas, um, and, and I am just as guilty of this as anybody. Um, the problem is that we we spend a lot of time and energy thinking through an idea and and saying, here are all the great ways that this can work, and here's why this could be a billion-dollar company, but we're actually very bad at seeing the downside risks, right? doesn't matter how much of, of a pessimist you might be. When you come up with a great idea, you want to see the greatness in it, and it's much easier to poke holes in other people's ideas, and um, so much so um, that Evan Reese and I actually have a process we go through with every opportunity where one of us has to be the devil's advocate. We have to push on every possible downside or pitfall with that idea in, in every way. And we have a structured written process and, and a verbal debate that we have to go through on each one of these. Cause the goal really is for each of these opportunities to, to fail, to not succeed. We want to stress test these things to the point where if, if an idea makes it through our validation process, um, we know that there's that, that that we have extremely high confidence in, in the idea, but we also know that there's nothing that we've thought of so far that could kill this business. Mm. No, absolutely. Have you invested in an alternative data company thus far? And what would you look for in the alternative data space as a kind of as a as something to invest in? Yeah, so I've definitely, um, you know, I, I've, I do a lot of advising work in the alternative data space. Um, I have invested in, in, in alt data companies. Um, and in fact, one of the, you know, the thesis I'm probably most interested in, in the alternative data world, I'd say the two, two theses that I'm most interested in. Um, mm-hmm. One is the really the transporting or translating alternative data that we've been using in asset management now for close to a decade and pulling that into other industries, whether that's going to corporates or to private equity um, or, or other areas. Um, I think that there's huge expansion opportunities outside of just the asset management context, just the hedge fund context for all data. So that's one area that I've been really focused on. How do you, what, what do you think? Have you got a view as to how that happens, that, that um, they're expanding into corporates, et cetera? Like what's the, have you got a path in mind or are you just keeping your antenna up for, for seeing it, recognize it when you see it? So a, a little bit of both. Um, I, I think that you know, on the corporate use cases, um, it's really, it's a matter of co- great companies coming out and building, building solutions that meet the needs of specific industries or specific sectors. Um, and, you know, and the more that, that specified products can be built, um, the better that you're going to see traction going sector by sector. And so um, I'm both an advisor and an investor in a company called Tayo. And Tayo is, um, it, it's spun out of the, the Stanford AI index. Um, and it's, a, it's essentially a, um, a platform right now that is tailored to um, industrial and construction companies and helping them with their supply chain analysis, their procurement process, and build out a series of, of really sophisticated dashboards to help people in those spaces with their, their specific needs. And um, so I, I'm very excited about their, their long-term roadmap ex- expanding into other sectors eventually. But right now, having really deep technical expertise and, and data expertise um, in those specific sectors. 
Um, and so, sorry, sorry, your, your second, your second um, uh, idea, oh, thesis. Yeah, my second thesis in the alt data space is a bit of a race to the bottom story, right? So that there are certain data that is just increasingly commoditized and, and that we're not, we're not going to move away from that. So, for instance, a lot of the web scraped data, um, it, it really is, um, it, it's, it's something that we, we've known uh, has existed for quite a long time and, and it's been sort of broadly available, um, but it hasn't been, um, you know, it, it hasn't been something that everybody could get their hands on forever. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a small investor in a company called Quiver Quantitative, um, mm. which, which exploded on Reddit um, at the start of the year in large part because they were actually analyzing Reddit. Um, but they also have data sets on analyzing um, members of Congress and their, their shareholdings um, and, and a variety of other web scraped data sources. And, and so because they've got this sort of broad base of web scraped data at a very low price point or much of it actually is free, um, I think that they're actually in an interesting position for a lot of companies, a lot, a lot of investors to be able to utilize what they've got and test out different ideas, di different thoughts with the data without having to spend an arm and a leg to do so. Doesn't sound as lucrative, though. Do you need many more customers for that to, for that to be the future? Oh, I think that's always the case. I mean, I think we've we've seen a race to the bottom in data pricing across the board. Um, you know, you're not seeing you know you're not you're not seeing a lot of a lot of data sets going for two, three, four hundred thousand dollars anymore. You're seeing a lot more data sets going for twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. Um, and so um, that that's just the, the trend the market's taken. Uh, and so now it's a question of can companies be efficient and effective at providing solutions that meet those lower price points? Um, because the pricing power is going to dissipate for, for any one of these data sets as they become more prolific and, and more accessible. Brilliant. Well, Evan, we've been on quite a romp, I think, across across political economy, monetary um, policy, through prattle, alternative data into investment. We've we've covered a lot of ground. Um, so thanks so much, and and best of luck with Scientifico. Um, who would you like to hear from? As a final question, who would you like to hear from with perhaps with regards to to Scientifico, or or uh, will you find them? Um, no, we're happy to to talk to. Uh, obviously, always happy to talk to interested investors. Um, we just kicked off our, our capital raise for the fund and uh, talking to the to largely to family offices and high net worth individuals uh, to to raise capital for that. But but also anybody who has great ideas, anybody who wants to come to us and partner with us to potentially build out a company um, or, or put some put an idea through our validation framework. Um, we're really excited about having a diversity of thought, diversity of ideas. Um, you know, having Having two founders literally both named Evan um, does not scream diversity. We know that. Um, and so we really want to be able to source great ideas um, from, from brilliant people who, who can see the market, see the world in a different way than we do. And so um, anybody who, who comes to us with a, with a startup idea, with, with something that we end up pursuing, we're, we're always happy to share the economics. Um, and, and so, you know, that's, that's really what I'm most excited about is getting to work with with potential founders or, or people who already have already stood up a company and um, and, and want to work with us and, and potentially you know take some investment, um, you know, we're certainly happy to to have those conversations. Fantastic. Well, Evan, thanks so much for joining and, and best of luck with the, with the new venture. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate you having me here. Very welcome.